So we're working our way through the book of Revelation, and, and last week we looked at Revelation 6, verses 1 to 11, which is about the four riders, which correspond to the opening of the first four seals. By way of review, for those of you who really haven't been here for the last number of weeks, uh, the scroll contains essentially the decrees of God. And John wept in chapter 5 when it seemed that no one could open the scroll. Because the sense of the vision is that if there is nobody to actually unfold God's decrees in time and space then they won't be accomplished. Now, obviously, this is not a strike against God's sovereignty. We know that God is sovereign. This is a vision, though, indicating to us that God has ordained that His activity in the world, both in terms of salvation and judgment, will be meted out, will be unfolded by a mediator. And so if there is not a mediator to accomplish God's will in the earth, it won't get done. This is the sense of the vision. And so... John weeps when it seems that that nobody is worthy to open the scroll. Because it means that there's going to be heaven out there somewhere totally disconnected from this miserable earth. And nobody is going to be able to bring God's interventions into this world in time and space. But then someone says, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He is worthy. And so Jesus comes to open the scroll. And he begins to take the seals off. And as the seals come off, we get a partial glimpse as each seal comes off a little bit more and more into what God has decreed in terms of his interventions in this earth by way of redemption and judgment. So just like if you rip a little piece of wrapping paper off a Christmas gift, you get a little peek. And if you wrap, if you rip a little bit more off, you get a little bit more. This is what's happening as the seals are open. We see more and more what God has decreed. So this is what is represented symbolically in the vision that John sees of the opening of the seals. And last week, I told you that the rider on the white horse is not the Antichrist, but is Christ himself who rides out conquering and to conquer in the words of Revelation 6.2. I told you that just as the first thing that John sees when he is caught up to heaven in Revelation chapter 4 is a throne. And that tells us that there is preeminence and centrality attached to the throne. It's the predominant theme of John's vision, the throne in heaven. Likewise, the first thing that John sees when he gets to glimpse into the scroll is this rider on the, right, on the white horse, conquering and to conquer. And so this rider on a white horse, conquering and to conquer, is central to God's decrees. The central thing that God has decreed in terms of His work of redemption and judgment is that, as we just sang from Psalm 2, He has set His King in Zion. And though the kings of the earth gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, God just laughs and says, No, no, I sent out my son riding on a white horse, conquering and to conquer. This is central to what God has decreed. And we see this by the preeminence given to Christ Jesus riding out to conquering and to conquer in the opening of the first seal. This is what I told you last week. Then it came to my attention through various conversations after the service that many of you were not convinced that the rider on the white horse is in fact Christ Jesus. And so we'll revisit that issue again this morning. And I'll endeavor to undergird and reinforce my position with a more thorough examination of the evidence for it. As last week, I basically, in passing, in two or three minutes, kind of summed up the basic arguments. Now, on the one hand, revisiting this issue is unnecessary, strictly speaking. As always, you are very free to disagree with me on matters not pertaining to Christian orthodoxy which this certainly isn't. It's well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy to not interpret the rider on the white horse as being Christ Jesus. Many conservative commentators, in fact, have done so. And, and I cited uh, one or two of them last week. And I'm not offended or insecure about disagreement within the church on secondary issues such as this. 
So it's not a dire situation, either for the orthodoxy of your beliefs, nor for our relationship as pastor and congregation, if we differ on how to interpret this rider on the white horse. And in this sense, revisiting this issue is unnecessary, strictly speaking. However, that being said, I do agree with Joel Beakey, who says, quote, the identity of the rider of the first horse is obvious, end quote, and goes on to argue in his commentary that it is obviously Christ. Now, when I say that I agree with him, I don't mean that it's obvious right on the face of it that anyone with half a mind could see it, but I, but I do agree with him that after we examine the evidence, I think that the correct and the obviously correct conclusion is to understand this rider on the white horse as Christ Jesus. And if that's true, if that's true, then to fail to see the first rider as Christ is an error. It's an error, as I said, still well within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. But it is an error nonetheless. And if it's an error, then it will be an impediment to understanding Revelation properly and gleaning all of its benefits. So I'm revisiting the issue of the identity of the first rider today, not out of necessity, as if it is an urgent or dire situation, nor as if my fragile ego has to make sure that you know I'm right. But I'm revisiting this simply in an, in an attempt to love and serve those of you who are not yet convinced so that you can benefit more from our study of Revelation. As I said last week, there are basically two reasons why I believe the rider on the white horse is Christ. The first is because the portrait of Christ on a white horse in chapter 19 points toward understanding the rider on the white horse in chapter 6 to be Christ also. The second is because the meta-narrative of Scripture requires it. In other words, the overall storyline of Scripture requires that someone designated as uh, he who has been given a crown going out to conquer, conquering and to conquer, consistent with the meta-narrative of Scripture, that has to be Christ. That's basically, those, that sort of high-level summary is basically all I said last week. And then I moved on. What we're going to do today is take a deeper dive into these two reasons in an effort for me to be more persuasive. So let's start with the first reason. Comparing the imagery in Revelation 6-2 with the imagery in Revelation 19 makes it clear that the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2 is Christ. So, again, I will turn you back to Revelation 19, and just let me read the relevant excerpt. Revelation 19, verses 11 and following. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one, who, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So, reading Revelation 19, we should at least all be clear that in Revelation 19, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Agreed? Alright. No one would probably put up your hand, but, but just, to, just to belabor the point... If you're not convinced that at least in 19, the writer's Jesus, I'm not saying this to humiliate or, or embarrass you, but let me, let me dig deeper if, if, if you're not there. 
Anyone? Okay, so we're all, we're all convinced that in 19 is Jesus. Alright? Now, this is an issue of what is called hermeneutics. Or in simpler terms, principles of biblical interpretation. A principle which holds true in the study of all Scripture holds true in Revelation also. Here it is in the words of Joel Beakey. Quote, Revelation is best understood by what our forefathers called the analogy of Scripture. That is, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. End quote. Now here's a lengthier quote from a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, Jeffrey Stuyvesant. The principle is founded upon the belief that the Scriptures have one primary author, the Holy Spirit, who inspired Scripture. Identifying the Holy Spirit as the primary author does not reduce all other human authors of the Bible to mere automatons, but it does place them under the Spirit's superintendence. Obviously, more could be said of the mode of the Spirit's inter inspiration. But for now, let's think about the principle that arises from the Spirit's work. Think for a moment about academic work. When an academic sets out to study the thought of a particular individual, the academician must read all of that person's work. And he must read every word in the context of the body of that man's work in order to understand that man's thought. So it is the case with Scripture. If the Spirit is the primary author of the Bible, then we must conclude that a difficult Scripture passage can be best understood when it is studied in light of the whole Bible. Sometimes this principle is described as that practice whereby less clear texts in the Bible are understood in light of clearer passages. End quote. Alright, so if you want to know, for example, what was Abraham's Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's view of liberty, then you go read everything Abraham Lincoln said, and then you synthesize and you understand, and you take any particular thing that he might have said within the context of what he has also said elsewhere. If you want to understand Adolf Hitler's view of the Ubermenschen, then you go and you read all of what Hitler wrote, and you, you, re you get yourself interpreting each of his quotes in light of what he has said in totality. This is the point that Stuyvesant's making, is that we, if you're not sure exactly what a person meant in this section or that section, light can be shed on it by reading the larger body of that person's work. So we do with Scripture also. We, we interpret, therefore, when something is less clear, we look if there are passages that are more clear which might speak to it. Now, here's how I would apply this principle to the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 and verse 2. If the Holy Spirit has given us very clearly the identity of a rider on a white horse in Revelation 19, which he has, and we all agree he has, for the rider on the white horse in 19 is called faithful and true, the Word of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the leader of, of God's people. If the Holy Spirit has given us very clearly the identity of a rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, that should inform the question of who is the rider on a white horse in Revelation chapter 6. We have a passage that's more clear, and we have a passage that's less clear. And we want to allow the more clear passage to speak to the less clear passage. The default interpretive position ought to be, in view of 19, which is clear, that everywhere that we see a rider on a white horse in Revelation, it is the same person unless there are clear textual indicators to the contrary. 
the burden of proof would lie on those who want to take the rider in Revelation 6-2 as someone other than the same person whose identity is made clear in chapter 19. As opposed to vice versa, the burden of proof lying upon those who want to take the two riders as identical persons. Let me try to break that down, what I just said. If there's a dispute about chapter 6, and I say, well, it seems clear that to me that it's Christ, and you say it seems clear to me that it's not Christ, the burden of proof would lie upon you to prove that it's not Christ, as opposed to lying upon me to prove that it is Christ, since we're given explicitly the identity of a rider on a white horse later on in Scripture. In other words, if we have to default to what would be the default position unless the text says otherwise, we would assume that the same imagery holds true across the book of Revelation. And the burden of proof would lie upon someone who wants to say, well, actually, in the, the same image means something else in one chapter than it means in another chapter. Right? This is, an, this is an important hermeneutical principle which ought to govern our study of all of Scripture, but especially Revelation with its manifold interpretive possibilities. When interpretation gets more difficult, we ought to be more especially focused on applying the fundamental principles of biblical interpretation rather than becoming less focused on utilizing and applying the fundamental principles of biblical interpretation. So take an analogy of sports teams. All right, let's take, let's take what is called in this country and most of the world, rightly so, football. All right, I'm a big fan of American football, but let's be honest. It makes more sense to call soccer football than to call that game football. All right, let's take, let's take the game of football, also known in a very small slice of the world as soccer, as an example. Okay, fundamentals. Passing, receiving passes, shooting, right? Basic fundamentals, technique. Here's how you position your foot. Here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Here's how you plant your non-shooting foot, etc., etc. Fundamentals. These are the things you practice. You teach very small children these things. As you, as you grow in your mastery of the game, you don't actually stop practicing the fundamentals, do you? What happens is you actually get better and better at that. Now, if you take a team of people who have mastered the fundamentals and you put them against a team of novices, so you, you take, for example, a number of men from our church and you put them against an English Premier League team. Now, how crucial is it, how crucial is it for the Premier League team to really make sure that they focus on the fundamentals. Look, I'll be honest, not really at all. <laughs> like, if, in fact, they, they could probably go out drinking before the game. <laughs> they could probably stay up all night. They could probably play uh, with, like, tie, with their legs tied together like a three-legged race. And they're still going to beat us. They don't really have to focus on the fundamentals as much if they're playing in a situation that's easy for them. But if they were to face another Premier League team, in fact, a team that's ranked higher with a better win-loss record, they need to focus all the more on the fundamentals. In a somewhat analogous way, it's like this with interpreting the Bible. If we come, if we come to a section where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's very unlikely that you're going to misinterpret what Jesus means in that passage. Whereas when we come to a book like Revelation, and it's a lot more likely that we could make an error, we have to be all the more diligent to focus on the fundamentals. Alright? 
So with that in mind, consider with me by way of illustration, the imagery of a lamb in the book of Revelation. If we see a lamb in Revelation, what is our default position going to be about who that is? Call it out. Jesus. Jesus. Alright? We will assume that a lamb in Revelation is Jesus unless there are clear indications to the contrary. Revelation 5 and the rest of Scripture makes it clear that it ought to be our default interpretation that a lamb is Jesus. And we should only interpret this imagery otherwise if there is sufficient textual warrant to do so. So in Revelation 6, 15 to 17, when the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Who are they referring to? Jesus, of course. And it might be natural to assume that in Revelation 13, 11, it is Jesus again. When John says that he saw a figure which had two horns like a lamb. But, if we go there and we read the context in which that statement appears, Revelation 13, 11 says this, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. Alright? So it had two horns like a lamb, but it was a beast. And it spoke like a dragon. And it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So, there are abundant textual indicators that we are not to interpret this person as Jesus. Even though the lamb imagery is used. So, the question naturally arises. If the rider on the white horse is plainly Jesus in Revelation 19... And that ought, therefore, to be our default position for interpreting a rider on a white horse elsewhere in Revelation. Could we find any clear textual evidence in chapter 6 indicating that we ought to interpret the identity of the rider in another way? This is the crux of the matter when it comes to hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. Well, some may say, if all the other riders are bringing disaster upon the earth, then it stands to reason that the rider on the white horse, as part of the group of riders, ought to be understood to be likewise bringing disaster upon the earth. But as even Robert Mounts, who does not share my interpretive position on the identity of the rider on the white horse, as even Mounts admits, no calamities follow after the white horse as in the other three cases. Sometimes in literature, emphasis is placed upon a concept by showing similarity. So-and-so was like his father. Another arose after the same pattern. So on and so forth. Phrases like that. However, sometimes emphasis is placed upon a concept by showing contrast. This one is not like that one. Or this one is not like those ones. The omission of calamities after the first rider does not strengthen the case that he is to be understood as doing the same sort of work as them. Rather, the omission of calamities after the first rider 
actually undermines the case that he is to be interpreted as doing the same sort of work as them, since the scripture says no such thing. It's silent on that, which makes it an argument from silence. Since the scripture says there are no calamities, should we assume that there are calamities? No, that's, a, that's very much a non-secretary. And so the argument fails to be conclusive that if all the other riders are bringing disaster upon the earth, it stands to reason that the rider on the white horse is also. So that's not clear textual evidence that we're to interpret Revelation 6 otherwise. And I think that is really the strongest textually based argument that we could muster against the default position of understanding the writer in chapter 6 to be Jesus. Mount does, however, raise three more reasons why he thinks that we ought not to take the writer in chapter 6 as Jesus. First, he says in Revelation 6-2, the writer wears a victor's wreath and carries a bow. In Revelation 19, he's crowned with many crowns and armed with a sharp sword. Well, this is a weak objection, really. For all of these images are fitting to describe Jesus, aren't they? Cannot Jesus wear a victor's wreath as well as many crowns? Cannot Jesus carry a bow as well as a sharp sword? In Psalm 45, verses 4 and 5, in fact, the Messiah does ride a horse and carry a bow. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Hmm. A rider with a bow, conquering and to conquer. In both Psalm 45 and Revelation 6. Again, Mounts' objection here is hardly conclusive. And when we go and look and we say, is there any precedent for Jesus riding a horse and carrying a bow? We find a messianic psalm. Which means that a deep dive into that particular objection may actually prove the opposite of what Mounts argues and may actually be more persuasive that the imagery used here is to denote the Messiah. Mounts' second additional objection is this. There is also the confusion involved in the lambs opening the seals, while at the same time being the one who rides forth when the first seal is broken. But is this really that confusing in an apocalyptic book? I don't think so. After all, Revelation is a book of imagery, visions, not a literal unfolding of events. Not that there's no correspondence or allusion to actual events. After all, we're talking about Christ unfolding God's decrees in time and space. But do we really think, after all, that there either has been, is now, or someday will be, four literal horses with four literal riders who accomplish personally and literally the things ascribed to them in Revelation 6? No. These are symbolic for the providential servants of God doing what He has decreed to take place. So whether they themselves are good people or bad people, what's happening here is God is unfolding things according to His decree. And so they become His servants in that sense, that they're doing what God has decreed, what is written in His scroll. And given the symbolism, then, of Revelation... There is really no difficulty in the Lamb's opening the seal and at the same time being the one who rides forth when the first seal is broken. In fact, follow me here, all that does is make the Lamb both the author of the story and a character in it. Which is exactly what we posit of God. The Father, the Son... And the Holy Spirit. All it shows is that the Lamb is an actor in the unfolding of God's decrees. 
as well as the one who unfolds them. Which is exactly what we do believe theologically is the case. So again, Mounts' objection here is not very strong either. Mounts' third objection is this. A final and fatal objection, he says, is the repeated use of the phrase, there was given, which normally in Revelation refers to the divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. But that is simply not true. In Revelation 6.11, the martyrs are given white robes and told to rest a little while longer. In Revelation 8.2, the seven angels who stand before God are given seven trumpets. In Revelation 8.3, another angel is given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. There are actually plenty of counterexamples against the assumption that because the rider on the white horse is given a crown, that this means automatically that this is divine permission granted to evil powers to carry out their nefarious work. That's just a selective uh, focus on some of the data without taking into account all of the data as a whole. So as we go through these objections, there is no clear, compelling reason not to understand the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2 to refer to Jesus. And according to the sound principles of biblical interpretation, or hermeneutics, that should be our default interpretation, unless there are clear textual indicators to the contrary. We're going to interpret the same imagery the same way, unless there are clear textual indicators guiding us to do the opposite. So we should default to understanding this rider as Christ Jesus on the basic or on the basis of hermeneutics or principles of biblical interpretation. That's our first point, all right? And does this fit theologically with the message of revelation and of scripture as a whole? Yes, it does. Moving on to our second point. Considering the meta narrative of scripture further corroborates the assertion that the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2 is Christ. As I said last week, the meta-narrative of Scripture is that only Christ and no one else could be truly said to be presently conquering and in future tense to conquer, which is what is said of the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2. I admit it, however, that there is a sense in which the devil and or his antichrist or other of his evil forces could be said to be conquering. After all, 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In John 12.31 And John 14.30, Satan is called the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he is even called the God of this world. In Revelation 11 and verse 7, we read that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on and conquer and kill God's two witnesses. In Revelation 13 and verse 7, we read that the first beast, quote, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In a very real sense then, yes, the devil and or his antichrist could be said to be conquering. And depending on one's view of the end times, there could be a future conquering yet to happen. However, in a much more important and emphatic and ultimate way, it is, I stand by the assertion, only Christ who could be truly said to be presently conquering and in future tense yet to conquer. Consider the emphasis of Scripture. 
the emphasis of Scripture is not on Satan's victories or conquests. The emphasis of Scripture is on Christ's victories and conquests. Even with respect to the present time and place that we live in. The emphasis of Scripture is on Christ's reign. Though Satan is called in places the God of this world, the ruler of this world and the like, the reality that Scripture presents to us is that His rule, whatever that is, however extensive that may be, however we define it, His rule is subservient to the plans and purposes of God. And that, in Mounce's words, divine permission must be granted to him to carry out his nefarious work. Alright? Even if, even if, for the sake of argument, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2 was Satan, or the Antichrist, don't miss what the Scripture says. A crown was given to him. The Scripture nowhere, nowhere, nowhere places Satan above Christ or even parallel to Christ as an equal, competing, rival power who may yet prove victorious. Nowhere. Satan and his Antichrist and whatever other forces of evil are on his side are always in Scripture under Christ. Even now, presently, in Barbados, in the U.S., wherever you may find yourself, this world, if Satan is the god of this world, if he is the prince of the power of the air, if he is the ruler of this world, it is only because it has been granted to him. Even in Revelation 13, verse 7, when the first beast makes war on the saints and conquers them, we read that he was allowed to do so. Allowed by whom? He who is opening the scroll and unfolding history according to the decrees of God. Who is that in Revelation? It's Jesus. The Lamb. He to whom all authority has been given on, in heaven and all authority on earth. Consider that conquering is sometimes predicated of Satan and his evil forces, I admit but is predicated of Christ and His kingdom in an ultimate sense, and way more. Way more. In John 16, 33, Jesus says, I have overcome. Same Greek word. The same Greek word. I looked them up and I wrote them down this week, every single one of them. Listen, Jesus says, I have overcome. In Romans 3, in verse 4, God's faithfulness prevails in the end. Same Greek word as conquered in Revelation 6, 2. In Romans 12, 21, we are told, we are told, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome, conquer evil with good. In 1 John 2, 13, the Apostle writes, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Same in the next verse, 1 John 2.14. 1 John 4.4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Conquered. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5.5. 5, who is it that overcomes or conquers? Same Greek word. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
Revelation 2-7, 2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-2-7-
the rider on the white horse has been given a crown and comes out conquering and to conquer, if they line up on his side, therefore they can conquer too. Now, this might have been an open question for the first century hearers when whoever was reading the book got to chapter 6. It might have been like our congregation where some people were like, oh, that's Jesus. And other people were like, that's the Antichrist. It might have been an open question in chapter 6. And they might be wondering to themselves as they hear the book read into chapter 7 and to chapter 8. But who is this rider on the white horse? Conquering and to conquer. Is he for us? Is he against us? Just imagine then how they would have heard it when whoever was reading this to them the first time got to chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. Their ears were poor God, and they said, now we're going to settle it. Who is that rider on the white horse? The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. Yes! He is not an obstacle to our conquering. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. That's our Jesus. In chapter 5, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. In chapter 6, he's the rider on the white horse going out conquering and to conquer. The question settled now in our minds. We now know that what was told us six times in chapters 2 and 3 that we have to conquer is possible. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and because Jesus, riding on a white horse, the messianic the prophesied Messiah of Psalm 45 rides out on a white horse with a bow to subdue the peoples under him. And if we line up on his side, what does Revelation 19 say? The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. We can line up with him, behind him, and because he has been given a crown to go out conquering and to conquer then it is possible for us to conquer. And then they get to Revelation 21 and the new Jerusalem descends and they hear the one who conquers will have this heritage. And they go, because the rider on the white horse is on our side, we may have this heritage. I hope I have made a more compelling case this week going into more depth, a more thorough examination of the two basic reasons why we ought to take the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 as the Christ. Hermeneutics, good hermeneutics require it, and the meta narrative of Scripture requires it. What are the practical ramifications of interpreting Revelation 6 to otherwise? In a sense, not necessarily any. It could just be an isolated interpretive error on your part. You could be generally sound in your hermeneutics and just slip up here. You could agree theologically that in an ultimate sense, Jesus is conquering and to conquer. But just think that that's simply not what is intended by this verse. If this is you... No problem. Carry on, faithful Christian. However, I do think that for many people, it's likely that your interpretation of Revelation 6-2 is a bellwether of your hermeneutics and your understanding of the meta narrative of Scripture. And that is more problematic. In other words, if you're not practicing sound principles of biblical interpretation here, in Revelation 6-2, it's likely that you are also not practicing sound biblical, sound principles of bi- biblical interpretation elsewhere. And that may lead you to many wrong interpretations, especially in Revelation, but even with respect to the rest of Scripture, and perhaps may even lead to you embracing a wrong or distorted system of theology. And you may come to understand even the whole meta-narrative of Scripture in a distorted, 
and faulty way. There is a danger of reading the Bible too optimistically, so to speak. This is the danger that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel falls into. But there is also the danger of reading it too pessimistically, if you will. And not being willing to accept and believe the encouraging truths that Scripture presents us with. Namely, in this case, that in spite of all the war and famine and death around us, Jesus is conquering and to conquer. Some people immediately want to say, ah, no, 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 Satan is the God of this world. No, 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 Satan is the prince of the power of the air. No, John 12, 31, John 14, 30, Satan is the ruler of this world. You're getting carried away being too optimistic about Jesus. You see, that, that's a real thing. There's an error there when our hearts have a hard time with the idea that even here and now, in this world, at this present time, Jesus is riding around with a bow, conquering and to conquer, and putting his enemies under his feet. And I would say, again, if after today, if you disagree, I'm not going to belabor this point ad infinitum. But I would say, I would say, consider your hermeneutics, consider your understanding of the meta narrative of Scripture, and try as as best as you can to interpret both the the realistic and hard parts of Scripture, so that you don't become overly optimistic and triumphalistic. But also, it's okay to be encouraged by the Scripture rightly interpreted. The good news that Jesus is a rider on a white horse, the prophesied Messiah of Psalm 45, coming out with a bow, conquering and to conquer. And that's the very point of of chapter 6 with the riders that come immediately on his heels. Yes, there's death. Yes, there's famine. Yes, there's war. But in the midst of it all, through it all, the preeminent thing, the first thing that John sees is Christ Jesus riding on a white horse, conquering and to conquer. And it's okay to give courage to your soul and tell your soul, take heart. Jesus rides through this world, conquering and to conquer. So let us practice sound hermeneutics, get the meta-narrative of Scripture right, and live appropriately realistic lives. Not overly optimistic and triumphalistic and naive, but not overly pessimistic and discouraged and cowardly either. The unmistakable emphasis of Scripture is Jesus' victory and conquest and the ultimate victory and conquest of His people also.